0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC.
1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video service with more than 5,000 lectures. For a limited time, listeners of The Culture Gab Fest can watch one of the most popular courses, The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, for free. Just visit thegreatcoursesplus.com culture. And by com, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at com. That's dot com, and use the promo code CULTURE. And by the A&E hit series Bates Motel. Catch the new season when it returns Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on
2: A&E. The following podcast contains explicit language. Thank you.
0: I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Who Will Criticize the Critics Edition? It's Wednesday, February 24th, 2016, and on today's program, we're going to talk about love. Let's talk about love, guys. The new Netflix series starring Gillian Jacobs and Paul Rust. And then Amy, our final week to revisit Oscar-nominated films we liked and should have talked about last year. We've actually taken a detour into documentary land to talk about the Oscar-nominated documentary on the life and death of singer Amy Winehouse. And then finally, we'll take the occasion of A.O. Scott's new book, Better Living Through Criticism and Many Smart Critics' Critical Evaluations Thereof, to talk about criticism and, among other things, why we do what we do and whether it's worthwhile or reprehensible. Joining me today is Slate's movie critic, Dana Stevens. Hello, Dana. Greetings. And relegated to the phones, we've got Steve, what is your title?
2: <laughs> My title? Are you kidding?
0: I don't know. Aren't you, don't you have one? Aren't you like a critic at large or a cr- culture critic or a critic of excellence or something?
2: I think I've been all those things at one time or another, well-fulfilling, none of the duties of any of them.
0: All
1: right. Uh, big,
2: intern at com.
0: Big kahuna
1: critic. <laughs> Tribal chieftain.
0: <laughs> Steve McCaff, uh, whose tie line is bunk today. So I am hosting and he is co-hosting or whatever we call it. Hi, Steve. Hey, Julius. All right. Well, Steve is here. I am hosting The Merry Band is Reunited. Thank you guys for holding down the fort last week. I should also let our listeners know that in the Slate Plus bonus segment of this show, available only to Slate Plus members. Thank you so much, members. Uh, we're going to inaugurate something we hope will become regular an esprit d'escalier segment where we revisit the topics we've pronounced upon in months past and Uh, reveal whether we've had subsequent second opinions, reconsiderations, or redoublings of our convictions. All right, let's commence. We're going to start this week with Love. This is a new Netflix series starring Gillian Jacobs and Paul Rust. It is produced by Judd Apatow and created by Leslie Arfin, who I believe is married to Paul Rust. All right, before we commence, let's listen to a clip. The first episode follows our two main characters separately until its conclusion where they meet. Not so cute, exactly. And we'll listen to that moment uh, where Mickey, the Gillian Jacobs character, is haranguing a convenience store clerk when she discovers she's forgotten her wallet. And then Gus, played by Paul Rust, comes and intervenes in the altercation.
1: You're just going to let that coffee get cold? You're just going to waste that cup of coffee? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. No, I'm fucking taking this coffee right now. No,
2: no, no, you stay into coffee. I'm calling the police. You're on the cameras.
1: I'm on the cameras? Big fucking deal. Hi, hello. Fuck you, fuck you. I don't care you have me on the camera. You know me, dude. I'm good for it. I'll come right back.
2: Hey, you know what? I got this. It's cool. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure.
0: Okay. And a pack of cigarettes?
2: A pack of smokes.
0: Parliament. Another abrasive comedy about love-struck, love-lorn Angelinos. We just talked about "You're the Worst." Before that, we talked about catastrophe, horrible people falling in love. It's another version. Do we need it? Did you like it, uh, Dana? Let's start with you.
1: Oh, man, this show is interesting to talk about precisely because it is so similar in many ways to other things we've talked about. But to me, it did sort of exercise its own lazy kind of charm. Um, I think as you hear in that in that scene that we listen to, the Gillian Jacobs character is of this new breed that we need to christen, this kind of new romantic anti-heroine who's Manic a little bit pixie like... jerk girl. <laughs> Right? I mean, who else can we enumerate in that category? It's um, You're the Worst. Obviously, both characters sort of partake of that kind of openly hedonistic and and selfish approach to life. And to me, that's the charm of You're the Worst. Um, But also Unreal, the uh, the reality TV sort of spoof drama that you got really into. Also has a similar female lead character who's kind of possibly an alcoholic, very abrasive, um, basically just kind of asserts her her rights in every situation to the detriment of whoever else is there. And uh, while Gillian Jacobs can carry that off with a lot of charm because she's beautiful and has a nice voice, I don't know, I did not like her character in this show at all. It was more like she's the worst. You know, she seemed to be surrounded by a kind of atmosphere of normal people that are trying to Get through life, and she alone seemed to be elevated to the status of the cool, beautiful girl who gets to be mean. And I didn't like that. Steve, what did you make of the show?
2: Look, it, the genre is exhausted. Um, it's being refreshed by making the women into something real and not just blank screens for the you know projection capacities of nerdy men, both uh, in the audience and in the actual you know show itself. After the first one, I was extremely skeptical and um after the second one I was kinda hooked. I mean it only has to be I guess the point I'm trying to make is it only has to be so new and the newness is gonna come with tweaking in the direction of feminism the genre, but it's also just gonna come where it always comes from, which is the chemistry between the leads, which I didn't think I was gonna buy at all. But really it was her performance that got me. And I'll tell you exactly the scene. Um it was when they're getting stoned in the car in episode two and the writing suddenly, to me, got... The characters got fuzzy and stoned. The writing suddenly got sharper. And the people suddenly became r- really real to me. And I, I suddenly realized, this show's really... You know, this is potentially much more about her than about him. And that's... All of a sudden, I was, I, was, I was really interested.
0: Steve, I want to press you on what genre exactly you think is being reinvented here.
2: Uh, I'm going to fail your pop quiz. I don't have an answer. I mean, it's just the... You know... A little bit the rom-com, which goes back till you know to the beginning of time, but also uh, the Netflix binge-watch about the perils of modern dating.
0: Is that even a genre that needs reinventing? It's so new.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a reboot of 15 minutes after the last one came out.
2: It doesn't. It doesn't feel new. I mean, there was a midway through episode one when I was kind of rolling my eyes. I was like, gee, I wonder if the next scene will be him with his friends in a diner. And you know, <laughs> it's it's it got old fast, even if it's not chronologically old, but um, but again, it's just, you know, that second episode has, it's a real shaggy dog story about two people who spend a day together by accident, most of the time stoned, eating fast food, and kind of getting to know one another. And is a show like this going to deliver a, you know, Hegelian thesis on the state of romantic love, or is it going to charm you with the raffishness and vicarious pleasure of hanging out with the people who star in it is probably going to be more the latter. And, you know, that's like a bullseye. This, this one started to really hit for me in episode two.
0: Yeah, I, I liked episode two better than episode one. And if I were a person who had more time to watch television, this would be on my list of things to try a few more episodes of. I would say given all of the things that I've been meaning to finish and watch that I like more than it. I don't think I will ever get to the rest of it. Sorry, Gillian. I love you. I look forward to seeing what you do next. But on the genre point, I mean, here's a theory that I will float that I have not fully baked in my own mind. So let's see if it hangs together. One of the things that I find slightly itchy here is that the genres that are being reinvented with these abrasive female romantic whatnots, that were the manic pixie jerk girls. One is the sitcom, right? One is the notion that on streaming the comedy can be different, it can be shaggier, frankly it can be like sadder and less funny. Like premium cable comedies have much lower joke density, the characters have more realism. It's not like punchline 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 commercial punchline 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 commercial like all of those rhythms of of network sitcoms get disrupted and it's it's more loping, it's more shaggy. We see it in Louie, we see it in Girls. It's like the realist comedy with fewer jokes, seems to me, the thing that both streaming and premium cable have enabled. So maybe it's reinventing the sitcom, but then also these this particular crop of romantic ones is sort of reinventing the rom-com, right? Because the notion of the meet-cute and the evolving relationship, which typically isn't what you do on a TV comedy. On a TV comedy, you don't do... Do that. You do the like repressed. It was there behind. It was there the whole time. Love story, right? You do the Jim and Pam. You do Mindy and Doctor. What's his face? I haven't watched the latest season, so don't, you know, leave aside your imprecations about their terrible relationship, which I understand has gone south. But you know, to the degree that there are romantic plots in television sitcoms, they've been the kind of uh, repressed tension that eventually culminates, and then either does or doesn't ruin the show, right? And at the same time, rom coms as movie genre are just dead and nobody makes them anymore and nobody likes them anymore, right? So this feels to me like taking advantage of the shagginess of the like premium cable streaming sitcom form to inject the rom-com, which is a beloved genre that doesn't really work on TV or in theaters right now, and then to reinvent it by making all the women really terrible and by making them the subjects rather than the objects, all of which sounds super admirable, right? But there's a flip side version of it which is which I find slightly galling, which is that when we do premium dramas, which are the serious important shows, we get like bad men. And then for the women, when we're trying to give them serious, complicated roles, their stories are still just about like falling in love with raffish losers. And and they're still not do I mean the reason why I would separate Unreal from these uh, is that Rachel, played by Sherry Appleby, in that show, her dilemmas are not fundamentally romantic. They're about, like, how to live and how to be. And I feel like maybe there's something kind of sexist and limiting that the complicated female protagonists of these shows, no matter how much you like them or don't, are fundamentally being inserted mostly into love stories.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's a brilliant point, Julia, and point taken. I, I will say there still needs to be, to the extent that people are working out private emotions in public by... Engaging with works of popular art, there still needs to be some reckoning of the state of modern romance. And what does it say that people don't want to go to a darkened movie theater, the semi public darkened movie theater, and have huge 20 foot tall images of Harry and Sally up on the screen, discovering, much to their surprise but not at all to ours, that they truly love one another and will live happily ever after? I mean, it's a real change in the culture that people won't believe that story anymore. I mean, they won't believe a certain kind of macho white male hero anymore, which is why, you know, it has to be inhabited ironically and beautifully by Channing Tatum. But, you know, similarly, like, people will not go to a movie theater in order to see happily ever after. And instead, you know, it makes sense that there's this at-home boutique substitute in which no one really believes in true love, and how are we going to live with the fact that no one believes that you can be remade into a new being through another person or the love of another person. That's a really interesting moment. And it doesn't seem to me that backwards to explore it over and over and over again, though your point is absolutely taken. The Manic Pixie jerk girl is, you know, it may not be some huge step forward for the cause of women.
0: I think that's a good point. And and of course, the flip side here is that love is like the great theme of all art and a perfectly reasonable thing to pursue and to suggest that it's a lesser thing to make shows or art or entertainment about is small and dumb and why I don't quite believe my initial diatribe. But I guess the other argument I have is, to me, the way the romance was treated in Master of None, the Aziz Ansari show, it's like normal people have trouble falling in love too. You don't have to be a like, self-destructive asshole to have love be kind of a hard time sometimes. And I mean, that show was maybe a little bit treacly, but there was a similarly realist, exciting romance that ended up having problems in that show. And the one episode of that show, Mornings, that that, in a really clever and cleverly edited way suggested how the initial bloom of a romance can kind of solidify into something that doesn't quite feel right anymore, despite two perfectly lovely, kind people trying to be kind to each other. It's like much more realist and heartbreaking than drugged out jerks can't make it work. I don't know, Dana, what do you think?
1: Well, for one thing, this is going back a bit, but I have to contest you guys' assertion that romantic comedy is completely dead at the film box office. It seems like Trainwreck was a big success last year and really got people into seats. And that I don't know, Paul Feig's movies with Melissa McCarthy are kind of revitalizing that genre. I mean, I would say there's a certain amount of Manny Pixick jerk girl action in those movies as well, right? Those They're, they're feminist by dint of having a, a protagonist, a female protagonist who has flaws, you know, sometimes major personality disorder type flaws. So it seems to me that that if we're going to if we're going to point to the manic pixie jerk girl as this emerging form i think she's both in cinema and in Wait, TV. are you trying to call Spy
0: a romantic comedy? <laughs> like I was wh- I was thinking of Bridesmaids, but yeah, no, that's a that's a spy spoof, but yeah, and Bridesmaids isn't a romantic comedy either, really. The guy is so secondary to it.
1: But this is what I'm saying, is that I think that that genre is actually undergoing... I think five years ago, I would have agreed with you. Like, we're all really sick of Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock making eyes at each other and whatever the latest romantic comedy is. But I think right now, there's some more interesting things happening.
0: Okay. Yeah, all right. Well, let's drill into this. I mean, we've we've put, heaped a bunch of metaphysical theories atop this show, but let's just look at the show itself for a moment. It's a grubbier version of L.A. than You're the Worst. I liked the cinematography of it and the locations of it.
1: It's but it continues to be set in the entertainment world, right, which I think we all agree is getting kind of tired. It's a job for our protagonists to have. Why do they always have to be somehow on the fringes of the Hollywood
0: entertainment industry? Yeah, I agree. And then let's talk about the performances. I mean, I Gillian Jacobs has been great in everything. She was amazing in community. She was awesome in a recent season of Girls as a ethereal jerk girlfriend. She was kind of a holier-than-thou jerk girlfriend. uh, Mimi Rose.
1: That was a great character. I'll miss her on Girls. A great
0: character. Like, she is electrically compelling and charismatic in the way that a Manic Pixie jerk girl is. And it's fun to see her. She's always played a little bit edgy and dysfunctional. But the, the particular pathos of this sad, fucked up woman, I thought she nailed and nailed in a different way than her other dysfunctional characters. What do you guys like about her as an actress?
2: Well, I think it raises a bunch of interesting questions. First of all, I absolutely adored her as an actress in this. I thought she was great to the extent that you're balancing, you know, all kinds of conflicting qualities from a kind of traditional screen comeliness to, you know, your pixie jerkness uh, I thought she was terrific. Like I just, I, I found her very real, and I was really interested in her. I was also interested, but somewhat more coldly, in why she would be interested in him. And here you have to tread delicately. I mean, he's. It's worth pointing out that the sitcom since Woody Allen has featured very often a nebbish, who, on first blush, doesn't seem to belong with the incredibly beautiful woman that he's with. And this, I think, it's fair game to talk about it because it reflects an inordinate propensity to sexism on the part of Hollywood. And it gets recycled for every generation because little nebs like me go to the movies and want to believe that we could be Seth Rogen, you know, or whomever is in the latest Judd Apatow
0: movie. (laughs) I'm so confused by Wasp Steve calling himself a nebbish who aspires to the screen comeliness of Seth Rogen, but continue.
2: (laughs) You understand, like I see myself in the neb on... Neb Steve sees himself in the neb on screen and has this vicarious experience because the neb on screen is getting this like, you know, world historically hot chick or whatever. I mean, it just, you know, I don't want to start lapsing into using the language of sexism that this archetype comes from. I just want to note the archetype and note it's sexism and say that in this iteration, here we go again. And Paul Rust is brilliant. He's charismatic. And no doubt many women find him, you know, you know.
0: A scrawny hottie.
2: A (laughs) scrawny But it's like, it's not not noticeable in this show.
0: Right. I mean, this is in some ways a, a, a super old and irritating archetype of like the Courtney Thorne Smith type incongruously appearing married to Jim Belushi and according to Jim or whatever else. Or the honeymooners, for that matter. On the other hand, Paul Rust is like a radical looking person to put on screen as a male star of something, even in the trajectory of... You know, nebbishy men paired with hot blondes. And that felt radical in a good way to me that that he could be presented mm-hmm. as, the, as the romantic lead. Like it felt progressive for men and their body image uh, just because he's he's nerdy in a very 2016 way and very slender and just not what it doesn't look like Janning Tatum.
1: But I think part of the way all this becomes believable in the show, the, the development of their romance, that is, is that it's taken in very slow steps compared to what we're used to, right? If this had been packed into a two-hour screen romantic comedy, you know, you would see you would see a condensation of the high moments of their courtship. Instead, it takes – I think it's not until the end of the fourth episode that they even admit that they might like each other, right? So it's the, the beats that it takes are, are a lot slower than in your average romantic comedy or your average TV series of this sort – And uh, I think that was part of Apatow's intention. He wanted to make sort of like a beat-by-beat, slow-moving exploration of a
0: relationship. All right. Well, maybe I'll stick with it. It's it's behind a long list, though, of shows that I need to catch up on.
1: Willa Paskin says correctly in her review of this for Slate that it's not exactly good, but it's entirely bingeable. And I think that's really true. It somehow manages to be structured. It's perfect for the Netflix dump format because it manages to be structured in such a way that you think, yeah, that was kind of not perfect, over familiar, but I'm going to stick around and see what happens in the next episode.
0: Uh, the show is called Love, very simply. It also has a great opening credit sequence. It's like very, it's animated and sort of of like throbbing and pulpy and gross and good. Um, so check it out. That's Love on Netflix, starring Gillian Jacobs and Paul Rust. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show when we pause for a word from our first sponsor. And that sponsor today is The Great Courses. One of the most fun things about putting the show together every week with Dana and Steve is that basically we just have to learn something new every week. We get to encounter something new and think about it and learn about its creator and the work and think about how it interacts with the world. We'll talk a little bit more about that in our session on criticism later on in the show. But we like learning new things. We suspect that you like learning new things. And that is why we think you might be interested in this offer from The Great Courses Plus video learning service. This new service from The Great Courses offers unlimited access to a huge library of The Great Courses lecture series in so many fascinating subjects. And they're offering one of their popular courses, The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, for absolutely free. The Everyday Gourmet is developed in partnership with the Culinary Institute of America, the most badassly named of culinary institutes, and it offers a great opportunity to learn from a master chef, giving you valuable tips on cooking, how to expand your palate, use spices make sauces. Complicated sauces will be illuminated to you if you watch this course. Just for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, The Everyday Gourmet, at $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. All right. Well, let us turn to our second topic of the day, which is Amy. This is a movie that came out, I think, last summer here in the States. It's a documentary about the life of Amy Winehouse, uh, composed of many clips obtained from her family. There's a ton of interesting footage in it. It's a movie that Dana endorsed sounding rather ravished by it, I recall. And put on my
1: top 10 list as well. And, I'm so
0: happy we're talking about it. And put on our top 10 list, and we never really gave it closer scrutiny. So even though we don't typically talk about the documentary nominees, we thought, let's uh, let's take this occasion to talk about one of Dana's favorite films of 2015 uh, in the anticipation of the Oscars this weekend. Steve, tell us a little bit more about uh, the movie and who made it and how it's structured, and then we'll dig in.
2: Okay. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what I know, which is that it's made by a British documentarian named Asif Kapadia. It uh, tells the story of Amy Winehouse, the excruciatingly beautiful career, but short, excruciatingly short career of the British soul, jazz, and pop singer Amy Winehouse. Um, In structure, I think it's totally standard, but nothing else about it is standard. I mean, it sort of tells the story of her growing up. She's a child of divorce. She's an enormously self-possessed, but also enormously insecure young woman with a bewitching vocal talent and impeccable taste in jazz and jazz vocals. And it turns out an equally bewitching gift for songwriting, that there's a kind of before the fame section where she's coming into her own as a singer and a songwriter very quickly and very precociously. She becomes very famous very fast for as great as her taste is in music her taste in men and substances to abuse is terrible and her short life and tragic life coincides with the ubiquity of digital video so there's always someone in her presence with something in their pocket uh... with which to memorialize the scene um... that's unfolding in front of them and they you know being that generation they did um... so there's this horrible disjunct between her total presence and omnipresence to the world through all of this archival footage of her and her total absence as someone who died well before her time
0: Dana tell us a little bit about why you thought this movie was so excellent
1: you know I think and I think I probably said this when I endorsed it back in in July or whenever it was this movie just surprised me with the the amount of, of feeling that, uh, for Amy Winehouse that it provoked I mean I went not knowing very much about her essentially knowing her big hits and knowing her as a Figure for tabloid fodder and kind of a you know sort of a, a metaphor for decline and, and addiction and uh, and this movie is just so so full of great performances so full of, uh, of, of given giving a sense of her as a musician and really so full of kind of capturing the joy of her short life that that somehow amazingly it does not feel like an extended two hour version of a VH1 behind the music which it seems like telling a story like this, right, telling this all too familiar story of, you know, brief stardom followed by this rapid decline would have to have that wallowing, prurient tone that this movie never, never has. And it's almost a mystery to me how Kapadia manages to be so revelatory and intimate and show, as Steve says, these very, um, you know, moments that almost feel like they shouldn't be filmed because they're too intimate without ever feeling as if he's sort of betraying Amy's story or the privacy of her friends, for that matter, the, her close
0: childhood friends who helped supply him with a lot of this footage? I think there's a very unusual uh, stylistic approach to this documentary. I mean, as Steve points out, the structure of it is is chronological and fairly straightforward and simple. But the storytelling style of it is unlike a lot of what I've seen in documentaries before. Frequently, you're hearing audio from one moment and watching video of a slightly different right. moment. Sometimes you're hearing contextual audio from the past while while you're looking at sort of a muted sound off set of interactions between Amy and her friends or collaborators or managers or fellow musicians in the past or still still photographs that are being panned over. And then when you hear from talking heads in the video, from her past boyfriend, from her past manager, from her childhood friends, from her mom, uh, you get a little chyron that says who's talking over, but you don't do the thing where they sit in the office in front of the books and talk to you. And it feels crazy to me in retrospect that more documentaries don't do something like that. But just that simple act of playing with the disjunction between the sound and the image makes the whole thing feel so much more artful. And I was surprised by how much I liked that because my typical objection to documentaries is that I feel distrustful of and manipulated by the use of imagery to kind of emotionally lure me toward whatever the argument of the piece is. And the more abstracted the imagery is and the more artful the imagery is and the less less it seems like journalism and the less clearly labeled and authenticated and sourced it is, the more kind of uncomfortable and wary and out on the thin ice in the middle of the truth pond I feel. But somehow this documentary scrambles all of those things and then feels like it lives like very sturdily uh, born up and and seems like it's reflecting an accurate portrait of this woman, her talent, and what it felt like to be her and be near her during her rise and during her fall. And I was so impressed. And it does feel like magic. I mean, it feels uh, hard to parse. I was talking to a friend, a filmmaker, who noted that d- uh, documentary makers are never nominated for Best Editing, that the Best Editing Oscar just by custom goes to editors of Uh, of fiction films and he was he's a documentary filmmaker so he would say this but he was like that's so fucking crazy like to make a documentary you're like yeah. you're working from hundreds of hours of footage yeah and, and footage that isn't that wasn't shot for any purpose I don't know if this movie should win best documentary or not because I haven't seen the other ones but well we saw the look of silence and we talked
1: about oh, that fuck. on the show
0: I liked that one a lot too okay well I don't know whether it should win even versus just that one because I loved that one as well but the the artfulness and heart of the editing choices here to me were so impressive there are all of these little minute moments from her past where the the lens seems to find some passing fleeting thought on her face or some moment of reservation. It seems to be like reading her in the moment in these very real ways and it's juxtaposed with voiceover or with her voice or her songs in ways that seem incredibly evocative.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing, right, is you don't need to fill... I mean, it was kind of a horrible embarrassment of riches having that much material first person material of her. So you didn't need to fill in with people redescribing or telling an anecdote for the 9 millionth time about Amy Winehouse. You never needed the head-on shot of, of of someone just recounting a stale story. I mean, you really get to be in her presence. And also, Julie, I think one really important effect of that use of an image from a different time in her life, from the sound and on and on, it gives you the sense that her life Set up and became very jumbled I mean it was incoherent to a degree to begin with we should say the part the documentary is emphatic about this that it was her parents divorce when she was nine and her exceedingly complicated relationship with a father who was largely absent from that point on and this is the man who we should say told her not to go to rehab. I mean, that line is in that song.
1: But having heard about that story that inspired the rehab song, don't you guys find that song sort of impossible to listen to now? I mean, even in the second half of the movie, sort of after the, the story of Back to Black, her big smash album, starts to emerge that music at once sounded, you know, more more beautiful than i had given it credit for and also much much sadder. So that might be something that would keep you from going back to listen after seeing this film.
0: It's tough. I mean that that moment with her father is one of the critical moments in the film, but there there's another heartbreaking moment where again the the bit of footage that's found just seems so awful and perfect where she's finally in rehab and with her boyfriend. Uh, and he's sort of needling her on the camera about how weird it is that they're there and how ironic and how it's not in keeping with the brand and the song. And she's going to have to rewrite the song. And then there's this moment in the middle of the harangue where she just quietly says, I like it here. I feel good here or something like that. And it is a fleeting moment and it passes.
1: And predictably even more so than her father, Blake Fielder Civil, who was her husband, I think, at the time, not just her boyfriend, and who her father claims, and it seems to be true, was the one who led her down the road of really hard drugs. He just comes off as such a, a total wretch, just like a horrible human being in a brief mm-hmm. brief interview clip.
2: Yeah, Dead Eye Vampire, I totally agree.
0: Uh, all right. Well, I'm glad we finally got to discuss the movie. Regardless of whether it wins an Oscar on Sunday night, you should go. And regardless of whether you have any care or affinity for Amy Winehouse or her music, uh, it's really worth seeing. I think the film is Amy by Asif Kapadia. You can rent it on iTunes. Come to our Facebook page, facebook.com culturefest to talk to us about the film and about her music. All right. Now it is time for our second ad. Dana, tell us about our second sponsor.
1: Julia, this week, the Slate Culture Cab Fest is also sponsored by Bowl & Branch, our favorite sheet makers. There's one important thing you can do to ensure a good day, and that is getting a good night's sleep. And one company has set out to make this possible. It's Bowl & Branch, which, as Julia and I know, have reinvented sheets and bedding with the sole purpose of making your nights more comfortable than ever. Their bedding is so soft, it will be a new standard of comfort you'll measure everything else by. And I can can vouch for that when my Bowl & Branch sheets are in the wash and I have to make do with my old, formerly considered soft sheets... Is is not the same. You can only get these products at one place, online, at bowlandbranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality sheets and not department store overhead. For a couple hundred bucks, you get amazingly luxurious sheets. They also sell towels, blankets, duvet covers, scarves, and all kinds of wonderful woven products. So go online to bowl, that's B-O-L-L, as in a cotton bowl, and branch.com, and they'll let you try a pair of sheets risk-free for 30 nights. If you go to bowlandbranch.com today, you can get 20% off your entire order, plus free shipping. Go to com today for 20% off your entire order and remember to use the promo code
0: CULTURE. Okay, Julia, back to the show. All right. Now it is time for We Three Critics to talk about criticism and the critics thereof and the self-criticism of critics. We are prompted in this by A.O. Scott, uh, one of the great critics of the New York Times, uh, whose book, Better Living Through Criticism, came out last month. We're not really going to discuss the book, uh, which we have read excerpts of, but not read all of, but rather uh, the excerpts of it that have emerged and the various pieces by other critics about his takes on criticism, which have all prompted us to think about the fact that we spend an hour plus every week sitting in a room criticizing things with each other. And then, of course, Stephen Dana. Uh, publicly perform acts of criticism on (laughs) on Slate and other websites. And I, meanwhile, shepherd a bunch of uh, critics and other analysts of the world here at Slate. Let's start a little bit with A.O. Scott and the excerpt of his book that ran in the Times as just a starting point, and then we can spiral out from there. But Steve, I think you've read furthest. Talk to us a little bit about uh, Scott's project here and what the big questions he thinks facing the critic thinking critically about criticism are?
2: Well, I mean, you know, the first thing that struck me about it, even before I started reading it was, well, the very first thing was that A.O. Scott's a brilliant critic. He's been that for a long time. He did notable work at the, you know, at the New York Review of Books and Slate before he got hired by the Times. You knew his byline if you cared at all about such things long before he got his exalted perch. And then he's done a great job there. I mean, he is a terrific, terrific film critic, Dana, I'm sure you agree. Oh, yeah. He's the master. He is. And um, so the second thing that struck me was the title, Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. I'm absolutely sure that that's um, both... It's both meant seriously. He's not a horrible ironist. He doesn't undercut everything he says at the same time at the same time he says it. Nonetheless, in this instance, I do think that there's a degree of irony there. He's not a self-help thinker or writer. Um, He gave it a Slightly ironic, I think, self-helpy title. Um, what I find most interesting about both him and this book is that he's a person who has—he is a supremely well-educated critic with deep thoughts—who's found a way to engage with a very wide audience without making them ever squirm about what they might not have read or um, themselves thought about. And this book is in keeping with that. I do think that that's a harder. Act to sustain over the course of an entire and very serious and very eclectic and capacious book. I mean, he, he you know, it's filled with everyone from Rilke to Maria Bramovic, to the Russian novel to French cinema. You know, um, on and on and on. He has a wide range, um, and he's at pains to be very uh, reader-friendly and general reader-friendly throughout. I find that a little hard to sustain as a performance. He's never expressed an opinion about anything in my memory that I didn't want to know what it was. Um, I think the larger project, and Dana. I'm curious what your opinion of this is. He is saying, let me quote from it. He says, you know, criticism, is it an art form in its own right that it exists to enhance the glory of the other arts? It's an impossible activity that it is necessary and vital to human understanding that it can never die and that it is in perpetual danger of extinction. Let me put this slightly more positively. I think a lovely aspect of the book is its appreciation for how little people like critics and its commitment to the idea that critics are not only utterly vital to a culture's self understanding, um, but also they're artists in their own right, a large claim that is the single one that critics of critics are most likely to resist. I'm curious what you made of that.
1: It seems to me, at least in what I've read of the book so far, which is, I don't know, about a quarter of the actual book and then, you know, these excerpts that have been been appearing online and the discussion about it, that... He's writing in a dialectical style, right? Like he's he's essentially, as you just pointed out, he has these two principles in tension with one another. One is that criticism, as he says, is the, the I think he says the late born twin, the late born twin of art, right? That it's kind of an, an equal sibling, but one that has, has been always sort of the the redheaded stepchild sibling that's been that's been regarded as lesser. On the other hand, he wants to elevate criticism to something like the ultimate art. And and it seems like he wants to leave those two things in tension the whole time. The same way that he wants, as you say, Steve, to go through intellectual history call all these examples going back to, you know, Greek drama and Kant and Sophocles, whatever, and and weave it into this very contemporary and people pleasing argument for for an audience of people who might not a priori care that much about the metacriticism
0: of criticism. So that is a hard tone to keep balanced. Yeah. So he's trying to convince people who don't care about criticism that criticism matters or he's trying to convince critics that they shouldn't feel bad about being critics.
1: I, I, I believe it's more the former, but in many cases, it's, it's almost a conversation with himself. I would say that those two voices exist within himself, and it's, that's actually staged in the book kind of graphically, because every few chapters, I think there's three or four of them throughout the book, he'll stage a conversation with himself. And there's a, there's a chapter that appears almost in play form, you know, with someone querying him or grilling him on the worth of his profession, and he's standing up in its defense. So do you
0: guys think criticism is an art?
2: Oh, I think, well, first of all, almost anything can be. I know that's a bit of a dodge, but um, I think that anything that is beautifully wrought that is also emerging from a self-conscious tradition, you know, kind of earns the right to be called an art. It's typically not an art. I mean, I think there is a way in which someone who does creative work derived from the raw material of life, right, who takes sounds and makes them into a string quartet or, you know, takes their, you know, circle of acquaintances and turns them into a drawing room comedy, or on and on and on, you know, all of that sort of earns it by default. You know, all creative work in that sense is participating in the arts, and that can't be true of anybody who writes a work of criticism. It's not. It's not as readily true, but there's just a moment, in the sometimes the smallest, most incidental pieces of writing, where something even if it's and I mean this sincerely, 50 words long goes from being, a hot take to being an essay. You know, and you may not be able to put your finger on precisely when that happens. But, um, and at that moment, it just becomes artful. I mean, the proof is just only in the pudding. These aren't pre-existing categories. It's just that moment when someone, my, my, you know, this is a little trite, but I, I tend to think of works of nonfiction prose, especially criticism, as either eyeglasses or fists, right? And you know the instant when you're at the, you know, eyeglass, you know, wait, wait,
1: wait. I need, some, I need a little clarification. What? You're about
2: to get it, Dana. <laughs> um, it's, you, know, you know the instant that you put on the right prescription and you suddenly see the world with clarity. If someone writes something that allows you to see anything, whether it's another work of art or the state of American politics or you know, uh, the state of race relations or geopolitics or whatever, you, you, you feel as though you are finally seeing it with clarity and for what it is. That's the eyeglasses function. The other function of a critic, I think, is to strike at the genuinely meretricious. And that takes real judgment, because there are some things that are too small for you to be striking at with energy or verve. Uh, and then there are other things that are fragile or delicate or unworthy or so vulgar or so irrelevant. And, and to hit at them makes you look stupid. But there, we live in a culture of hype. There are many things that are large uh, and have become enlarged beyond... Their own inherent decency and they deserve to be struck at and what they should be struck at I mean the fist is is really the understanding someone 's unique understanding of why something has become meretricious and therefore slightly oppressive and that 's another really vital critical function. It seems to me probably either one of those can be made so artful that an essay. To me, it's just personally, it's just to me as valuable as a television show, a play, or a piece of music.
0: I'm not sure the fact that something in its ideal form is artful makes it art. Or at least I think criticism is vital and valuable and that without it, art wouldn't be as good. Because having people help you read and synthesize and think about the creative works that people create, to me, is like part of the process. Like when I see something I love or experience something I love and have a set of inchoate, elevated feelings from from having enjoyed a massive towering creative achievement... My response is that I then want to go read about it and read why read smart people tell me why it's so great. Like why was it so great? What was so transcendent about it? What was it doing? What was what levers was it pulling in me? What past works was it talking to? What is this thing that it has achieved? I want but but to me it's like there is text in Talmud, right? Like it it doesn't feel like it I, I, I basically don't believe it's an art form. It feels to me more like a craft that can be practiced with varying levels of skill and excellence and a vital craft, like almost like cooking, like mm-hmm. without it, you would die. Like without it, art seems empty. And and it, honestly, I mean, the last time we talked about this, we tried to do this kind of across the divide, like hands across America conversation with John August and Craig Mazin about criticism and creatives. Uh, at our LA live show, which was made slightly awkward by the elephant in the room of Dana having trashed Craig Mason's movies. Um, <laughs> and so it was perhaps not as free and frank a discussion as it might have been, as delightful as it was to chat with those gentlemen and as, as smart and excellent as they are. But I'm I, however much it must sting to have people trash your work, like to me, it would feel worse to make a piece of art and have no critic engage with it and think about it and interpret it. Like that, to me, the, the notion of not being interested in, at all in what critics think Seems crazy,
1: you know, Julia. In relation to the to the text versus Talmud kind of uh, opposition that you posed earlier on, it seems it seems important to note that both Scott in his book, or the parts of it that I've read so far, and Laura Miller in her review on Slate of the book, talk about criticism as a distillation of conversation, essentially. Right, that that the emotional and analytical response that we have on leaving a movie theater or walking out of a museum after experiencing some work, the emotional intellectual experience has always gone hand in hand with art itself. In other words, you can't, you can't move back far enough in the history of art to find some pure place that was untouched by the imagined kind of parasitism of criticism, even though there is a long tradition of regarding critical texts as parasitic, right? Or, or as sort of like the, the, the Talmud. The Tal- I'm sure that Talmudic scholars would dispute your point that the Talmud itself is not a work of art as much as the Torah that it's, that it's explicating. Nice and handprint, for- cave boy. <laughs> exactly. Whoever painted the Lascaux caves, right? They called somebody in. And said, "What do you think of my cow?" <laughs> and I think Scott makes this point in his book, but if not, I'll make it: the, the the Greek dramas that are, you know, sort of the foundation of all of Western literature as we know it were seen in contests. You know, they were basically seen in the context of these festivals that were judged at the end, and it was decided who had written the best play that year. So it's sort of as if the Oscars and the movies had been born at the same time, right? I mean, it's as if as if the, this need to to judge, to analyze, and to criticize flows from the same source that the, the urge to make something. Thing in the first place, it flows from.
0: Yeah, and I also feel like when you encounter a really profound and interesting piece of art, to me, the most interesting ones are ones that suggest ideas about what it means to be human in the world like what that's like, how that is for people like you, how that's like for people not like you. And when you read a really good piece of criticism about a work of art, I often find that it not only clarifies the work and how it functions, but what it. Is saying about those larger ideas. So, that, so to the degree that art is an ongoing conversation about how to live and what it means to be, criticism is something that makes all of that stuff like richer and more exciting and more valuable and more meaningful. And and it is engaging with the bigger questions and not just the like. Well, if only they'd put this paragraph here and not had so many jokes about turkeys and you know whatever <laughs> whatever whatever else the like constrained, bloodless version of criticism is.
2: Right, and there's a distinction between criticism and reviewing, and you know, reviewing is very often uh, service journalism. You know, has service function of thumbs up, thumbs down, pay for it, don't pay for it, go, don't go, and you know, then there's there is there's criticism of work that's hundreds of years old that might not get read otherwise unless this prism were, you know, unless it were seen through this prism of criticism, and you know, people in some a critic working with authors that are dead or long dead. Is very often reconstructing a world and doing it very artfully. So, you know, the, between the hot take and, you know, Harold Bloom, there's like a pretty big gulf. And what's interesting about A.O. Scott is I think he kind of wants to be both of those things and all of the things in between. And he has enough talent to make you think maybe he can pull it off. Dana, another interesting thing is always fascinating, right? Is when a book like this comes out by a critic about criticism, all the critics line up. And as much as I love, in different ways, Leon Weaseltier, Laura Miller, and Dan Mendelssohn, I mean, it is comical, because that's exactly who you would have said off the top of your head. Review editors were going to hand a copy of A.O. Scott's book to. And each one gave not their hot take, but a considered take on, on the book. But it's interesting how each one of those is also a mirror, right? I mean, it's impossible for critics to write about a critic without saying what a critic should be, this critic isn't exactly that, even though I politely admire them to the skies. Um, here's what criticism really is, and then fill in the blank, obviously this thing, here's what I really am. <laughs> I mean you I, I defy anyone to read those and I when I say admire those three writers, I really mean it, but I defy anyone to read those three reviews and not conclude that they're sort of holding a mirror up to their own practice.
0: Well, I mean and what are we doing here, right? It's sort of yeah. a it's like a, a mission reading a smart critic think about what the point is of what they do makes you think about what the point is of what you do.
1: I mean, I have to say that in general, I detest metacritical discussions and I really don't like being asked to go on panels to talk about things like the state of film criticism and the future of the critic. And I don't know, I just the, a lot of those conversations seem to be empty and repetitious. And from what I've seen of this text, it is not that. It's actually bringing new light and new thoughts that I had not boringly gone over before in my mind. I, the role of the critic is something that if I think about it too much... I don't know. It, it, it just seems like listening to your own voice on tape or something. I think I just need to keep plowing ahead and doing it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what, Dana, you know what metacriticism is? So criticism can be either eyeglasses or a fist. Metacriticism is putting on a pair of eyeglasses and then getting punched in the face.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I got shards in my eyeballs. Oh, no. <laughs> How are you going to review the movies? <laughs> Damn it.
0: A.O. Scott. I shake my fist at A.O. Scott. Um, All right. Those are our three topics for today. If you want to come uh, critique our criticism of ourselves as critics, go to Facebook.com slash CultureFest, or probably better yet, read Better Living Through Criticism, A.O. Scott's new tome. Uh, We'll post links to it and the various excerpts from it and essays about it that we've discussed on our show page at slate.com slash CultureFest. All right. I think we have another sponsor before we endorse. Dana, who's our sponsor? Julia, the Slate Culture Gabfest Fest is also sponsored this week
1: by A&E. On Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, the Bates Motel will reopen on A&E for a fourth season. Bates Motel is a modern-day prequel to Alfred Hitchcock's iconic film Psycho. It stars Freddie Highmore as Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga, actress I love, in the Emmy-nominated role of Norma. This season finds Norman and Norma growing more suspicious of one another and their trust issues will get worse than ever as their mother-son relationship continues to crumble. And we all know where that ends (laughs) with the literal crumbling of mom. Watch Norman evolve into the infamous Norman Bates as this season finds him completely losing his grip on reality. Bates Motel knows how to deliver the crazy and season four promises to get crazier than
0: ever. So tune into Bates Motel Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. ET on A&E. Now is the moment in our show when we endorse. Steve, you never get to go first. Endorse.
2: All right. Well, I know that Forrest last week endorsed um, going to see the Oscar-nominated animated shorts and going to see them in a theater. I took his advice. I went and did it. He's totally right. It's a great thing to do. It's It's great to make, even though they're now largely, if not, completely available online. It's totally worth going to see them in a movie theater. I wanted to pick out one in particular. I just thought they're all Good. You're grateful for having seen all of them. There's one, Danny, You probably have seen it called World of Tomorrow.
1: That's my favorite. That's the one I was saying last week. I'm rooting for it to win.
2: It's unbelievably good. It's so brilliant. It's such a great example of how drawing skills. Like it's it's not an it's not an elaborately animated, a digitally enhanced production at all. The the drawing is basically stick figure, but the um, production is uh, and the script are so creative, and the voicing is. Done in this interesting way. I'll let you go discover it yourself. You can see it online. Um, if you have to see it online, do. But uh, definitely, definitely, it is one of the better movies I've seen in a long, long, long time. And I will quickly say that I saw it in Hudson at uh, Time Space Limited, which is a great space. And afterwards, took my 13-year-old daughter and her 13-year-old friend out to Grayson Angus, the diner in Hudson. I hadn't been there in years. I endorsed them years ago. They're fantastic. They're still great. They've expanded their menu. They're filled with locals and hipsters. It's a great place to go. Gray's and Angus, Hudson, New York. I really, really love what they're doing. All right.
0: Those both sound good. Dana, what are you endorsing this week? All right. So I'm going to be a
1: tiny, tiny little bit self-promotey and endorse a project that I was a part of, but only a small part of. It's this this ridiculous, silly thing that Dan Coy's got an idea to do this year in the run-up to the Oscars, which is to make little videos from different Slate writers making the case for which movie they think should win the Best Picture Oscar. It's called The Best Case for Best Picture. We'll put a link to the show page on Slate. And the ones that have gone up so far include... Oh, my goodness. Um, Can you help me out with this, Julia? Uh, Our own Forrest Wickman talking about why the big short should win Best Picture of the Year, which includes some lovely footage of Forrest in a bubble bath a la Margot Robbie explaining derivatives to us. Um, We also have, oh, Dan Coyce doing this wonderful whispery voiceover for The Revenant, where if you've seen The Revenant, you know the sort of faux Terrence Malick whispers on the soundtrack, and uh, and Dan captures those
0: perfectly. we also have uh, Willa Paskin making an impassioned case that Brooklyn is a f- wonderful movie that needs uh, to win the Oscar. I found her case very persuasive. Also, she delivers it entirely in a... In epistolary form. In epistolary form, and then read over in a like lilting Irish accent, uh, which she does quite well. Dan so the, counters with a bizarre, weird accent that makes no sense. <laughs> I think
1: he's trying to be—I think he's trying to be the Brooklyn Italian dude. You know, he's trying to be the sort of like, um, you know, sp- spaghetti mafioso voice. But yeah, part of the charm of these videos, to me, is that you know we're writers and editors, we're not performers, and so the fact that we're putting ourselves in these goofy scenarios, vaguely inspired by the movie, has made for uh, lots of fun. I myself taped one last week that hasn't gone up yet, in which I get to play Rachel McAdams' character in Spotlight, which involves wearing pleated khakis
0: and walking rapidly through fluorescent-lit hallways eating cake. And Julia, you're going to tape one this week? I have my star turn later this afternoon, uh, in which I have to try and outact Matt Damon, so wish me (laughs) luck.
1: (laughs) You're doing The Martian. I, know. Somehow, I love it. Somehow I got tasked with The Martian. We'll anyway, see. Dan Koyce's background in theater improv has made him put us all in
0: these very awkward positions, and you can see the results of them on the Best Case for Best Picture page. They are quite charming, the ones so far. I cannot vouch for my own, but I'm sure yours will be, and they're very fun. I, w- I will also say that I don't believe criticism is an art, but these video shorts are <laughs> absolutely are. They There's v- one exception with the to my diktat, form. and that's these shorts, which are just high they just put them up next to the Mona Lisa on a on a on a video screen. Then we'll be all set. Um, I should endorse something, huh? Guess so. Uh, my endorsement this week is a little weird, but it is uh, the avidness of birders and the overlap of such creatures with the avidness of readers of the New York Times. The New York Times ran a piece yesterday about the emergence of ravens in Queens. I believe it was. You know, ravens have returned to New York City check out the ravens and a birding friend of mine emailed it to me and a few other more expert birders that we know and pointed out the picture at the top of the story and said isn't this a grackle? And lo, it was. And lo, he sent an email to Corrections at New York Times. And lo, the photo has been changed. There is now an actual raven on a girder, none of the glossy tail feathers of a grackle.
1: Was it a stock photo of a graphic grackle? Or did someone, did some New York Times
0: photog go and photograph the wrong bird? I don't know the full story, but I think the credit on both photos said it was a raven photographed in Queens. So somebody went out and shot a blackbird in Queens or at least obtained a photo of a black bird photographed in Queens because the location I think remained the same in in, uh, both. But God bless the New York Times for finding a proper ravens in Queens photo fast enough. And God bless my friend Ari, the assiduous birder, who thought he spotted a flaw in that edifice of learning and in fact had and caused them to correct the record. So, uh, their
1: credibility is shot.
0: No, I think their credibility is bolstered by their speedy response to the error. Uh, you know, you can't, can't get everything right the first time all the time. What you must do is be responsible and vie for truth, bird truth. Can and I just point out there is no more nerdier question on earth than, isn't that a grackle? <laughs> <laughs> I resent the nerd voice you have imputed upon my keen-eyed birding friend, Ari. I feel like there's a lot of things I like about this. I love birders and how much they care about telling different blackbirds apart. Uh, I love the New York Times for covering the bird life of New York City, which I think probably actually weirdly is a traffic bonanza for them because New York birders are strangely avid. And I love the New York Times for like fixing it so fast. You know, it's uh it's a it's a mistake anyone could make. Nobody's going to mix
1: up crows and grackles
0: on their watch. It's not crows, Dana. Oops. It's ravens. <laughs> ravens. Crow is a whole different blackbird. <laughs> Um, so anyway, the New York Times Correction Desk and Accuracy in Blackbird Identification are my endorsements for this week. Uh, Steve, thanks for letting me steal your chair. Uh, Any Dana, thanks for chatting. Thanks, Julia. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, Slate.com slash CultureFest, or come chat with us about these subjects on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our producer is Ann Happerman. The executive producer of Say Podcast is Steve Liktai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. We are part of the Panoply network, which you can find on iTunes. And our Twitter feed is at SayColdFest. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
2: Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, the host of the newest podcast on Panoply, Imaginary Worlds. Every other week, I explore different sci fi fantasy genres, how they're created, and why we suspend our disbelief. You could start at the beginning with what makes a good origin story, whether you're applying for a job or starting out as a new superhero. You could also check out my five part series on Star Wars, where I looked at how the evil empire became a metaphor in sports and politics and whether Princess Leia's gold bikini is a feminist icon. Imaginary Worlds gives you the backstory behind pop culture stories and how they've changed the way we understand the real world. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.